everyone. Welcome to the Scarehouse Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Dutters, and today I'm joined by co-host, Mr. Scott Simmons. It took us seven takes to get to that. <laughs> I'm just going to blow up the spot right now. Hello. <laughs> I'm good at my job. And today, we actually have one of Scott's friends. I have never met this guy before in my life. <laughs> 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 but uh, Steve Paris, uh, local guy to the area, and you have a pretty exciting background, I think. Even, despite not even knowing that, that you <laughs> personally, um, we so, found out about we found out about it on the internet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Scott, you you ran into Steve at a show recently. Yes. Yes. Well, it's so every so often on the Scarehouse podcast, I like to do this thing of um, back in the day of you know I've been doing. Scarehouse for a long time, but also have uh, a long history of doing video production. And back in another life, I worked at Channel 11, the BPXI TV. And I've been thinking about it. Uh, I'd already been thinking about it a lot. And then we were actually at a, a live event and I saw Steve there, stayed out of his eye line because he's a really big deal in Pittsburgh. But um, Steve, I don't know if you remember this, but I was thinking, so back in the 90s, uh, I would be producing or being involved with these huge local news commercials. And, you know, local news stations, they still do image spots. They still do these big campaigns. Um, I'm willing to bet they don't have the kind of giant budgets that they used to. And back in the 90s, um, I think it's fair to say that PXI in particular had huge budgets. We uh, once closed down Craig Street and made it rain, literally, big rain towers. We made it snow. But... um, I remember Steve was involved uh, as location scout and I believe assistant director on this thing in McKee's Rocks where we basically, oh, yeah. I don't know if you remember that. It was I like do. some sort I of, do. we had fire trucks, we made yeah. mayhem. We made it rain there. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. We did make it rain. <laughs> yes, it's a different kind of make it rain. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so I Steve is, I've known Steve for a long time, but I think our first interactions were back working on these, shooting on film. Believe it or not, there was a time when you used to shoot local news commercials on film and do these huge elaborate productions. And it was sort of known then and now that if you're doing some big film, video, television production, you're like, oh, you got to get Paris. <laughs> I hope that still holds true. <laughs> so how, step us through your journey, Steve. How did this all get started for you here in Pittsburgh? You sounded very much like a psychoanalyst <laughs> for a second. Um, oh, boy. Uh, well, I'm born and raised here. I moved away a couple times and came back um, and started in a couple of careers that I gave up almost instantly. Um, civil engineering. I taught high school, both of them, for about a year. Wow. Uh, and then got into the film business in 1989. Uh, Silence of the Lambs was my first film, which was, which was a pretty cool first film. And uh, just kind of fell backwards into it. I'd always wanted to do it. Didn't think there was enough in the area to make a living at because there wasn't really back then. But um, over a summer where I was teaching high school, a friend of mine called me and asked me if I wanted to work on Silence of the Lambs. And I knew the book. So I was a huge fan and saw that as an opportunity and got in and worked on that for actually about nine months, which is for a film is a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I moved furniture into the office. I did everything I could. I worked on the set. I guarded the sets at night. I mean, literally anything that I could. And as soon as that kind of freelance position dried up, I immediately took whatever the hell else was out there. So I did a million things on that and tried to learn as much as I could and just never went back. Um, 
there were some union troubles up in New York at that time. So there were a lot of films just flooding into Pittsburgh, one after the other, after the other. So just never went back. I got to do what I wanted to do. And I've been doing that, like I said, for about 29 years, um, working on TV and film, uh, commercials, as you said, you know, commercials for PXI back in the day. And, uh, yeah, and that's what I do. I, I haven't done locations in quite a while now. Um, I first assistant direct and, uh, direct smaller projects for myself and some second units on features and things like that. Well, in something about your past, and I, I think this was my experience as well. I mean, when I was in high school, I sort of got this, this advice of never turn down any work and also don't get too specialized because at least for me, when I was in high, I knew in high school and college that I wanted to get into video production or film production specifically, but, um, some of the best advice I got and followed and it sounds like you were also following was don't get so focused on this is the thing I'm going to do and I'm going to be the best at say yes to everything and try everything and just, you know, work begets work, more experience, more, you know, especially in a town like Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, any, anything you get offered, you should do. I mean, especially when you're starting off in your career, I did, wasn't a hundred percent sure what I wanted to do in film. I just knew I wanted to be in it. So it was nice to kind of, you know, dip my fingers into this, that, and the other and figure it out. Um, and I, it took me about 10 years to figure out I'd never wanted to do locations again because that's an insanely stressful job um, that you, some of your bosses understand what comes with it and some don't. Um, and I know since who that, you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> since, yes, you do. You do, actually. Um, and since then, I've settled into, as I said, first assistant directing and uh, and directing some smaller stuff. And you're right, like never turn anything down. I remember I was on a trip, the trip that I proposed to my wife ages and ages and ages ago. And we were out of town and I got a call uh, three or four days before we were supposed to leave and they offered me two days work. Mm -hmm. And I went back and forth and I talked to, I didn't even propose to my wife and I talked to her and she said, yeah, no, I get it. You know, we got to go back. And that turned into nine months work and then that one job. And then from that, I got to know a lot of other people that, you know, gave me other work over the years because it's all just like a big game of connect the dots, mm -hmm. you know, who you know, who you meet, who you like. And so, yeah, both pieces are extremely sound advice. Well, and I know in film production, you know, I've never been involved in a big movie, but, you know, a lot of the people we use on our stuff are just, you know, being sort of uh, tangentially related to all the different communities here. But I've heard time and again you know, a big part of working in a movie is you're going to be, or any kind of big project, ongoing TV series, you're going to be with some of these same people for eight, nine months. Oh, yeah. You want to know like, oh, this, I've worked with this guy before. He's not a jerk. Yes. Because I mean, that's honestly, yes. sometimes that's part of it. I know. And we say this all the time in the haunted house. Skill is obviously very important, but we're going to be working long hours in the trenches, having all the stress. And any kind of creative process is so stressful and so challenging. Like anything you can do, like, yeah, I don't want to have to deal with the drama or staying out of eye lines or doing whatever. Like, I just want that solid guy who I've worked with or girl who I've worked with many, many times before. And again, I think that's so key is just showing up, doing the work. Don't be a jerk. Yeah. And it's especially with creatives working with creatives who all have their own ideas, which most times are pretty good, but they may not be kind of consistent across the board. So sometimes you have to make sacrifices and sometimes you have to give input to other ideas. And it's just, it's a challenge in being able to bring both that like ability plus the personality. It's just 
when we find those people, it's like we hold on to them and don't let them go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't, so I don't want to make this too much of a Chris Farley esque podcast, but <laughs> how, I mean, what a crazy first experience out the gate to work on Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Do you have any uh, like vivid moments or memories from working on that? Lots of little pieces because I was bouncing around so much. Um, you know, I remember uh, God, Ted Levine who played yeah. Buffalo Bill in that. Like I got the chance to talk to him and he was thrilled because I knew him from his TV show Crime Story that was on at the time. Which oh, wow, yeah. the vast American public had no idea what that yeah. show was, let alone who he was on that show. So we hit it off talking about that just because he really appreciated that somebody had watched the show and liked the show and liked him. Um, Anthony Hopkins was a sweetheart. He took a bunch of like the lowest paying people on the entire shoot out to a huge dinner. I can't remember where the hell it was. I just remember it was fancy especially for me back then. And he paid yeah. for it and like hosted it. He was a sweetheart. Um, Jody was so young and just fun. She just had a, a real exuberance about everything. And I think to kind of break the tension of the movie mm -hmm. and the intensity of it was kind of a goofball in like the best way and would jump in golf carts and race around the sets and was just, <laughs> just wonderful. Um, you know, had some odd moments. There was a, a, a short period, like I said, where I was actually guarding the sets at night and there was some guy that kept breaking in and running around and stealing props. And so that was really creepy to be on the sets of Silence of the Lambs in Buffalo <laughs> oh, Bill's basement and see some guy like running by you at 3 a.m. out of the corner of your eye and chase him oh. holding a pipe. And, you know, one night I was there, we had heaters because it was set up in an old um, Westinghouse city, practically. And we had uh, gas heaters mounted on like the 30 foot ceilings. And one night I was there, one of the death head moths got free, oh, flew up hit the heater, which had exposed flame on it, caught on fire, fell down, and started catching the basement set on fire. Oh, my God. Oh my God. Yeah, and again, this is four in the morning. So yeah. I had to run in. I'm looking where the hell are the fire extinguishers, grab one, and, and put out the set of Buffalo Bill's basement because one of the moths was aflame, wow. catching everything on fire. So, yeah, it was a very weird um, but completely enjoyable experience. It was great. It was just so strange every day. It was and great. you really don't want to be that to be your legacy of – Hey, who was the guy who set the set on fire? <laughs> what was his name again? Yeah, good luck believing the story unless yeah. you were actually watching it. I'm sure that happened. <laughs> so is this where the expression moth to a it, It's true. <laughs> I can vouch for that 100%. <laughs> well, being from Pittsburgh, um, I should jump back. How much of an inspiration was it, uh, George Romero, that whole everything? And I, I, I'll say this quickly as, as background for people who, even people in Pittsburgh who might not realize that it's 50 years, 50 years ago to this year that Night of the Living Dead, which was shot uh, outside of Pittsburgh, really, but we're going to say it was Pittsburgh, premiered here. And I never thought about this myself. Like, I've always known, of course, the modern day uh, idea of the zombie and everything started with that film, but I never realized how influential Romero was really on the independent movie circuit. Like, that was one of the first true independent movies so oh, yeah. how much of a influence was that on you growing up to get into all this it was huge i mean because you know i was a i was a film geek i read a lot you know the, the whole nine yards 
And, um, but to have somebody in the town I grew up in that actually made movies. And as I said, when I wanted to get into it, there wasn't a lot of work. It was George every year, every two years. Yeah. And that was it. So it was really, really, really cool to have somebody in your town that did, you know, what you wanted to do that was in the field that you wanted to do. And like you said, I mean, a lot of his films were independent style, um, I was lucky. I worked with George a couple times. I worked um, on Dark Half, which was a studio film mm-hmm. um, that went crazily over budget. Um, and meeting George and working with him, he was just a sweetheart. He was the nicest guy. He was like everything you hear about. He was, you know, an absolute, you know, just a sweetheart, nice to everybody, mm-hmm. even that shoot for a lot of mainly technical problems got way, 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 way behind. So there was a lot of studio pressure, never took it out on the crew. You never saw him with anything less than a smile on his face. So, you know, growing up, it was kind of an inspiration that somebody could actually do that in the town you grew up in. And then meeting him, it was just wonderful to know that he was a good guy and a talented guy, because sometimes, you know, there's these people that you kind of, are your heroes, that might be overstating a little bit, but are your heroes? And then you meet them and <laughs> they're not the nicest no. people yeah. in yeah. any way, shape or form. Um, and vice versa. Some people that, you know, you think, oh, they're probably not very cool. And you meet them and they're the nicest people on the face of the planet. You know? Yeah, so I was, nice. I was very, very lucky. Uh, the remake of Night of the Living Dead, uh, Glenn Ritchie and I were there because Glenn, I, I've mentioned this before in the podcast, uh, Glenn has been a part of Scarehouse for a long time. He's he's one of my oldest friends. His uh, his family was part of that original Image Ten group. So like Rudy Ritchie, Richard Ritchie, they've sort of been in and out of those movies. And uh, as a result, I was able to be on the set of Day of the Dead once. And again, George was really nice, really accommodating. Came over and talked to us. But it was on the remake of Night of the Living Dead, which at that point I would have been in college. That was just insane because, especially in these days, it was just Glenn and I. We were basically given free range. It was literally like, okay, don't don't stand in front of the camera. <laughs> Other than that, and I mean, I'm 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 saying like there are scarehouse shoots now where I won't let people get as close to the camera as we were as they were shooting. Like pivotal moments, and Glenn and I are like five feet away from the camera. Like I don't, are, is it okay that we're here? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I have such a vivid memory of sitting on the porch of the farmhouse and uh, eating pizza. And George came over, put his arm around me. You, know, you got enough pizza, Scott? I mean, for <laughs> me, who grew up so inspired by those movies and that influence, I mean, that's just a mind-blowing moment. And yeah, exactly. It felt, I mean, again, a very professional environment. Everyone knew what they were mm-hmm. doing. They were there to do. But it was so warm. It just felt like putting on a show it was it was great yeah yeah that was the actually the only time i was an extra um i wanted to get on that film really badly but they were a tight-knit group which i appreciate now you know they were given jobs to the people they knew and they had worked with before and i just wanted to you know experience that set so badly um i actually signed up that's the only time signed up to be an extra on that and uh it's funny, yeah. If you watch it, the the whole like end sequence when they're burning the zombies and all that, like I'm just a young me running all through that, mm-hmm. and uh, I had the same experience. It was just you like the been warmest. There the same, crew. You might have been there the same day, <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah. Because I think they did that stuff during the day, and then they did the stuff at night. I probably, so, we were yeah, probably ten we feet were probably, away from yeah. each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was it was just it was great, you know, and and 
back then, especially um, once I started working more and more and more, uh, you know, yeah, there was a real family feeling and, and films were a lot of fun. Even studio films didn't have quite the magnifying glass on yeah. them and the nitpicking of studios, um, you know, necessary or not, you can argue that all day long, but it was like a looser feel and it was yeah. just a lot more fun uh, to be on things back then. I look at, and this is before both our times, but I will regularly watch Dawn of the Dead. And I, to me, the fact that they do those, they have a motorcycle gang driving full speed through Monroeville <laughs> Mall doing stunts, knocking, like knocking, th- knocking into things, doing stuff like that would never happen. I don't care what the budget is. No mall's going to go. I'm oh sorry. God, what are you going to no do? Way. What? No way. Yeah. Yeah. And they had to shoot at night and have everything cleaned up every morning. They had to like, they would go berserk at night, cause their mayhem and then clean it all up and disappear so that the mall could open every morning. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, that would nowadays that would, you know, you'd probably be looking for a recently closed mall yes. and things <laughs> like that, you know, and, and a lot of that would be CG where, you know, now, I mean, back then it was, it was just practical and they were, they were just hanging it out there yeah. doing their thing. And I, I think Romero sort of ushered in this whole, it's a, it's a, I know he is not a Pittsburgh native, but or was not a Pittsburgh native, but he kind of I think Pittsburgh has a mentality of, you know, we it's almost Midwestern. We do not suffer fools easily, but we're also, you know, these guys putting on airs in that. Like we're, we're not yeah. we're we get a little bristly if you tell us, oh, you need to have X, Y, Z or you're not fancy or smart enough to be able to do this. And I think there's definitely sort of a Pittsburgh thing of like. Yeah, come on, we can do this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We got a camera, we got a thing, let's absolutely. do it. Absolutely, yeah. There's a, there still is a huge spirit of that. You know, I worked on a ton of independent films here before I started doing the bigger stuff. And, uh, and yeah, it was the spirit of, yeah, we can do this. Why can't we do this? Yeah. There's so many talented people here and we can get a camera and, uh, you know, something to record sound with and we can do it. You so, know, and there still is. There's still tons of kids making independent films in Pittsburgh every year. So you were part of, you know, you were part of that, because Pittsburgh has had a couple different waves of yeah, production, and I guess you've really been part of all of them at this point. <laughs> but so after Silence of the Lambs, after that wraps, what you know, what kind of stuff was going on in town, and how were you able to sort of get in and out of some of the thing, the movies coming in and out? Well, like I said, it's funny. Back then, we were a non-union town, um, and so you know, films would come from everywhere. And I think I'd mentioned earlier that there was union troubles in New York. So things were just flooding into Pittsburgh. So even as like a newbie set PA location scout, there were so many things coming in. It's like you would get a call two months before you would wrap whatever feature or or show or whatever you were on and they'd be trying to book you. So it was like the perfect time to get into the business because things were just, like I said, even at the lowest positions, you were getting calls and they were trying to book you and scoop you up and so I went from that, you know, right into it. That initial streak lasted, you know, maybe five years. Wow. Um, and then by dearth of doing that stuff, Pittsburgh kind of got a reputation like, hey, you can go there and make films. And even after we unionized, things still kept coming in. And we were getting those kind of biggish action films at the time, oh, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Sudden Death and Bruce Willis and Striking Distance and um, so I worked on all of that stuff, uh, and you know, the crew base was smaller back then. So once you kind of got established in whatever your position were, you, they would call you. It was kind mm-hmm. of a really beautiful thing. It was great. So, um, that, that lasted for quite a while. And then the film tax thing kicked in 
Boy, I'd be hard pressed to put a time on that. I know it was when the TV show, long forgotten TV show, Kill Point was in town. And uh, oh yeah, that was yeah. in Market Square. Yep, was that, they did yeah, a okay. ton at Market Square. Um, Lionsgate was that? I think yeah, they were right. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right. And uh, and that kind of blew up and reenervated Pittsburgh as um, a place again to come and make films. And we got the film tax credit, which you know from then till now is really what guides what cities mm-hmm. gets get work. So um, it was at the right place at the right time. And, and we've, you know, still just had floods of work since then. So Well, and for people who might, and even I sometimes get a little confused on this, the film tax credit, because they're, uh, Pennsylvania has it. I know Georgia clearly has it. Yeah. Uh, how do, I mean, how does that work? Because I think it's one of those things that sometimes you hear the headlines and people fighting for it. But how does the state tax credit work for potential filmmakers? It's really, really misunderstood. And it's, it's really galling for myself and say the thousands of people I know that make a living and you know, are just regular people. They've got families and, you know, wives, husbands, kids, at home and every year we have to fight to keep this film tax credit because a lot of people think, oh, hey, monies that could be used for other things, we're shoving them in producers' pockets. Mm -hmm. And it's like the farthest thing from the truth. I mean, if you really wanted to boil it down to make a really simple analogy, it's if you come here and you hire a certain percentage of local people and you spend a certain amount of money, the taxes that we would regularly take off of you we give you a little bit of that back. So it's obviously a big incentive for anything that's coming in here and also of any size. I mean, even the really small productions that come in here use the film tax credit. So it's it's money we wouldn't get into the city without this film tax credit. And it costs us nothing. I mean, it's basically like somebody would come in and spend $10 and you you'd usually tax a dollar, mm-hmm. but instead you tax eighty cents. Yeah. So you're still making nine dollars yeah. and twenty cents. And and if you cancel that, trust me, especially nowadays, they will not come into town overnight. Yeah. They will stop. Yeah. And then you're not saving money. You're losing nine dollars and twenty cents. Um, and it's incredible for good or bad. It is what guides the industry. North Carolina's went away mm-hmm. a couple of years ago and quite literally overnight, every single project there bailed out. We actually inherited a TV series Banshee for their last year that had been set up there and you run in for three years and immediately overnight they were out. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's really a misunderstood thing. Um, it does nothing to benefit, but benefit the city. And, you know, people, again, they think it goes into producers' pockets and they don't realize that a lot of that, I mean, so much money comes into town, millions and millions and millions, comes into town and goes to hotels, goes to mm-hmm. hardware stores, the the nails that build the set, the paint. It's it's crazy, you know? I mean, last year, you mentioned Atlanta. It was last year, the year before, they, the city, made $5 billion, with a B. Yeah dollars that went directly infused into the city what was spent there was way way more but that that just got pumped right into the city's veins five billion dollars yeah well and i know as you say it becomes a misunderstood thing that gets reduced to sort of a political soundbite yes because there's a perception of oh these west coast hollywood folks what how much more money they need right and meanwhile if it's a a sporting event or a convention it's quickly understood like, well, those, that helps, that benefits our hotels right. and that benefits this, that, and the other, you know, who cares if Tom Cruise wants to come to Pittsburgh? And if you've, 
ever spent any time really looking at a movie set or a movie production in Pittsburgh, uh, especially when the Dark Knight was in town and you see blocks after blocks of stuff they have to rent, hotels, the just the influx of into the economy and all the all the different businesses. And then also just when these movies come out, they add all the additional PR of like, huh, Pittsburgh, that looks like a place to go to. Yeah. And exactly what Steve said, it it it's not like that money's being taken away from some other thing. It's not like, oh, we we don't get Christmas this year because Tom Cruise won the shoot in <laughs> town. Like you can have both. They're both pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's just it's very, very misunderstood. Um, and like I said, it's a shame because it's nothing but a, a boon to the city. And and like I said, I work with these people. I work with these these boys and girls and men and women. That that's how they make their living. And uh, you know, it's just difficult to see that almost every year um, when uh, budget time comes around, being in jeopardy yeah. when it's such a no brainer. It, it quite literally does nothing but good. And it's just it's upsetting to constantly see it questioned and then see other states embrace it and get work that we could have yeah um, we lost um three fairly large projects to atlanta last year that were going to come here um because we quickly ran out of the film tax credit allotment um you know and there could just be so much more work uh, that that could be done here but but is not because we're locked in at a fairly low um percentage for the uh allotment for the year uh, and for the city and it also makes it hard, I know, for to put in infrastructure because yes, these you know the if more movies came to town, you could have uh you know more equipment in town, more yeah. studio space, more all this stuff. But you're always playing that game of oh, we could build a studio for all these movies that are coming to town. Well, you don't know what movies are coming to town because it's a year to year thing with the tax credit, right? And so if you own a space, why would you invest? you know, whatever two, $3 million to convert it into, you know, a true sound stage. And in a year, all the work may go away. Yeah. Whereas, you know, a lot of states and cities have um, multi-year commitments and you know, if you're going to put that in, the business is going to come for at least X number of years and you're going to make your money back plus some. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's, there's a, a dearth of sound stages here and we have some equipment, but that literally goes away pretty quickly and people are renting from New York and these other places yeah. that that have those established rental houses, and you know it could all be coming from here and benefiting local oh, people. One, there have been times on scarehouse shoots where we have not been able to get the equipment we need locally because you know there are movies using it. I'm yeah. like, well, I can't, you know, again, I can't compete with Christopher Nolan. I guess I'm gonna have to call up somebody in Boston yeah. and rent some lights and stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's only a finite amount of gear and and. You know, obviously, the first people to call them up, they're like any business. They call them up and say, hey, we need your gear. You're going to say, sure, here, come get it and rent it. And then that's it. The well is dry. Yeah. Yeah. And is that uh, my memory of sort of that first phase? I'm, it's funny you mentioned I'm, I'm, these are all coming back to me. Like <laughs> the, uh, um, oh, what was it? The, the Striking Distance, Mothman Prophecies, yeah. Hoffa. Like there were all these movies and then they just kind of stopped. There was sort of that fallow period in the late nineties. So yes. what, what was life like for you at that point? It's funny because that segued for me and for a good majority of the film crew, the larger projects went away for a while, but what happened is that's when the dot com millionaires were everywhere and making so much money 
that they would spend a million dollars on an independent feature because they could write it off. I mean, the, the money was just exploding. If you remember the early dot-com money was absurd. People were turning into millionaires overnight. You know, somebody that was making a hundred grand a year in LA was suddenly worth 20, 30 million. And they wow. would quite literally finance films because they wanted to, because it was fun. And because it was either that or give a million dollars to Uncle Sam straight off. Yeah. So I segued right into doing a lot of independent films. There were tons of independent films back then. And back then they were um, a larger budget level because people were willing to gamble that kind of money. You know, yeah. I was doing movies that were, you know, a million to six million. Um, and you'd be amazed, you know, at the if with a little creativity you can make um, back then and now you can make, you know, 5 million look like a $30 million film, yeah. you know, and, and especially at that point, as you said, it was kind of the only game in town. They were getting all the professionals, all the gear people that, you know, were hugely qualified and giving all their skills to these fairly small features mm -hmm. that were being made. And, and it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was, uh, again, it was kind of, you know, a crazier time because some of these films were, were kind of loosey goosey and very genre based, a lot of horror films, nice. a lot of comedies. So, you know, I mean, that's one of the things I love about the job is that, um, go into a set every day and it's just something radically different every single day. Yeah. Um, and being a horror fan from way back, uh, you know, it's, it's fun that you, yeah, you can go and work for months and watch two people argue from across the table, or you can go in one day and see a vampire scamper up a building and somebody get their head blown off and hit yeah. by a bus. And, and, you know, it's just, it's a lot of fun and it's fun to see how that's done, um, both back in the day when it was practical and now with a lot of CG stuff, it's, it's really, uh, it just makes it really, really exciting. Well, what are some of the horror movies here in Pittsburgh that you've worked on? Oh, boy. Okay, I'm going to have to bust out the list. Yeah, I, I, knew, say, I knew it was... Uh, I was going to say, I, I can't... So, locally, um, Silence of the Lambs, I don't know. You know, that's kind of skirting the point as to whether that's a horror thing or not. Did Innocent Blood, oh. um, which was a ball. I, I so much fun. I, I think they just re-released that on the new edition or something. I want to track that down and see it again. It's it, great. It's that, great. I, I, it's funny, actually, Dutters and I were just talking about, uh, Steve, another Johnson, Steve Johnson, the effects artist. Yep. I remember Steve. And yeah. just thinking, <laughs> and just thinking, I just had that moment as an adult of going, I bet the effects artist in the eighties have some stories to tell. Oh I, yes. I just, I can't oh, imagine yeah. what it was like. And Innocent Blood, and I'm sorry, I, I will, I will absolutely let you jump in. Just watching that movie, you just go, that had to be an insane set. It was, it was, it was, it was crazy. John, John Landis, the director, um, was, I like John despite myself, but he, he yes. was crazed. I mean, he was absolute crazed, frothing at the mouth with passion for making this film. And, uh, it's still to this day, the film that people use as like a, a scar of honor, a badge of honor for working on it <laughs> because it was just so nuts. And it, 72 night exteriors in a Pittsburgh winter. We had 72 straight night exteriors and you literally lived like a vampire. I mean, I had to go home. I was renting then. So I took a staple gun and stapled towels over my windows. You wow. couldn't let the light come in. Yeah. And it was just every day. Um, it was all practical back then. So, you know, for say, like I said, for a vampire scampering up, you know, a, a 30 foot um, pipe down the side of a building, you know, massive crane comes in with a stunt woman, drops a cable, 
lashes it up, up they go. Um, you know, Don Rickles was in that film and he was just an absolute scream. And like his key love was to make somebody on the crew crack up and ruin a take. Nice. <laughs> so he was just constantly goofing around in between takes, during takes, um, you know, just this practical stuff of shutting down Liberty Avenue downtown oh, yeah. and building kind of a very slightly animatronic um, figure of Robert Loja and smashing a bus into him, you know, blowing a bus up with a fireball that went up four or five stories. I mean, I remember one night I was, I was a set PA on that. And I I remember one night I was up on a roof on Liberty Avenue and it was just the weirdest image. I was laying on my back next to the edge of the roof under this parapet and I was cueing these stunt people in I'm in a Robert Loja mask to make you look like Robert Loja. And they're jumping off the side of the building into an airbag that was, you know, five stories below. And it was just such a freaky memory to be laying there and just looking up at these stunt people and one by one cueing them to just jump with no wires, just leap off the side of a building into the stunt bag. It was just (laughs) every night was crazy. And I do have to say, like back then... There was a lot of partying, so we would <laughs> yeah. we would work all all night, and and Liberty <laughs> Avenue was not the cultural district. No, that we now um, and bars could be opened at six or seven a.m. by a film crew that wanted to come in and spend a lot of money and drink for four hours while right. they should be sleeping. So it was it was a very fun, very crazy shoot. And as I said earlier, like every day was just something different. You know, shutting down things, car stunts. Um, Anthony, Anthony LaPaglia, that was the, the lead in that was just the sweetest guy. It was, it was a really enjoyable, insanely crazy, uh, feature to work on. It was just a blast. Yeah. Yeah. That's (laughs) amazing. Let's see. I worked on, uh, I did a short of my own, which was a zombie based short in 99 called reign of the dead. So that was a lot of fun. We got to go into a lot of like closed mill sites and things oh, like cool. that and do our own kind of uh, take on, on a zombie film. Um, I worked on dogma, not necessarily a horror film, but mm-hmm. you know, a lot of crazy effects, oh, um, yeah. you know, worked on one of the indies I worked on was called strange girls, which was kind of a, a really weird, um, violent take on this set of twins that were uh, that were crazy and were murdering people left, right, and center. It was directed by a woman that's gone on to be a really good friend of mine, Rona Mark. So it was kind of interesting to see her take mm-hmm. on on kind of a horror film. I worked on a film um, years ago called Corpsing, which was kind of a flip of the Frankenstein tale, um, and again was made for three dollars and a nickel but uh you know made it work and uh you know had a really dedicated crew and uh you know lots of crazy effects on that also just all sorts of stuff you know and then recently um last year i had the ridiculous pleasure of going down and doing one episode of fear the walking dead in mexico oh which was just uh, the most surreal that was probably the most surreal job i've ever had in my life it was just crazy it was insane yeah you know we were filming not in any touristy area that's for sure <laughs> um my very first day there and i would swear on a stack of bibles this is true my very very first day i was there i got in the scout van and they're taking me out to this ranch where they had been shooting for a couple of months and we're driving through a shanty town that's literally made of like corrugated yeah. tin and just pieced together 
And as we stopped at our first stop sign, a headless chicken ran in front of the van, oh, squirting wow. blood. You know, it was like, hey, welcome to Mexico. Here yeah. we go. And, yeah. and it was just so nuts. And they got such bang for their buck production wise down yeah. there that it was by far the largest thing I'd ever worked on. Oh, interesting. Um, a friend that was the director of photography got me on an episode and I went down kind of not knowing what to expect. And um, because of the labor costs down there, they, the crew was enormous. It was massive, you know? So I showed up the first day and there were you know, 300 people, 200 zombies wow. on this miles large ranch and, you know, immediately was doing things, you know, blowing things up and, you know, beheading and driving through. Day. Yeah, <laughs> just your normal day on the ranch. Um, and it was just, it was uh, a lot of fun. And the crew, you know, being in the middle of nowhere, um, both the locals and the people that were from LA and, and around the US, just, you know, every night you hung out with each other. So, yeah. you know, it was a real throwback to the way things used oh, to be. Yeah. It was just a really, really good time. It was great. Well, at these television budgets now, you're, you're like old <laughs> man. Um, but watching these shows on cable, uh, especially The Walking Dead, both The Walking Dead shows, but I mean, even we had Mindhunter. Yeah. I guess we're shooting right now. They're gearing two? up to shoot season gearing two. Up yeah. to see, sure. Uh, you know, all these shows on Netflix, I mean, it's a different economic model, but, um, you know, I will watch those shows and sometimes just start breaking my head. That's expensive. That's expensive. That's expensive. Yeah. They, uh, the TV, some of the TV shows now, I mean, the past few I've worked on their budget for a one hour episode is maybe three times what some of the independent features I did. Yeah. Oh, sure. You know, and, um, you can kind of, once you're kind of in the belly of the beast, you can kind of see how that gets siphoned away because God knows it doesn't seem what we, we have enough that, to do what we need. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of those shows, we have about seven and a half days to shoot an episode. Wow. Um, and you're running and running and running from location to location. TV is just such a meat grinder. Yeah. You know, the producers and the money people are just hovering over yeah, you looking yeah. at their watches and if you go you know the law is you don't go over 12 hours and by god they enforce that law they don't yeah. give a good goddamn where you are <laughs> at eleven they're gonna be there and they're gonna pull the plug at yeah. 12 hours they don't you know it's just and it makes you learn to get it done and i mean that's my job you know is we have to keep our eyes on the whole day and not get behind on something and then sacrifice something later and you know sometimes that makes me popular on set and sometimes it makes me quite literally the least popular person on set yeah. is saying oh that's great we got to get out of this and if you don't believe me you're going to pay later and it just it, it it's a lot of pressure on tv um even given their fairly large budgets yeah it's pretty crazy and every successful project needs a dream killer yes so it can be on <laughs> yes, there and that's <laughs> me by god well and and uh for people who might not uh, fully grasp what it, what does an assistant director do? It's funny. It's a question I get asked sometimes. Like, well, what, what, what's an AD do? Like, well, short answer is keep people from killing each other. But <laughs> how, how would you answer that question? Um, well, I'm the first AD. Um, so I have a second AD that works for me and a second second, um, oddly enough. And, and overseas, it's called a third AD. And then uh, a fleet of set PAs. And m- my job is... As soon as the script comes in, I break it down into all its components so that it can be budgeted and planned. And uh, and I schedule it and try to make the most efficient, makeable schedule 
saving money on everything humanly possible, you know, clustering locations together, watching crew turn around and actors turn around and scheduling days next to nights and working with locations and compressing actors schedules. So we're not paying actors to sit around. Mm -hmm. And then in pre-production, I I'm in charge of all the different departments and making sure they're prepped and up to speed. And, you know, sometimes talking to the showrunners and begging them to change a night scene into a day scene because you can shoot faster. And that way I can get through that week in the schedule I have. And a schedule is hardly set in stone. I'll probably for a single TV episode do maybe 30, 40 passes at mm -hmm. a schedule once it's quote unquote set because things keep changing and rewrites. And so it's just making sure everybody is as prepped as humanly possible by the time we get to shooting you know, we'll tech scout location, we'll creative scout with the director and make sure that the locations are what they like. We'll tech scout with the crew where we talk out in minute detail what we're going to do on that day and where everything's going to go so that they can plan. I'll go back with the director and creative scout it so that they know in their brains how we're going to shoot it when we get there and I can get a shot list off them. Yeah. Uh, and then once we start shooting, it's, it's running, it's been described sometimes as I direct the crew. And the director directs the actors. Yeah, that's you know? cool. Yeah. So I'm in charge of making sure we're on time and on schedule and people have the information and are keeping their attention on what's next and what's next next and what's tomorrow. And, you know, because if you slip a minute, you're, you're not yeah. only going to get shut down and not get certain shots. It'll affect the next day's call time and the actors you're going to be able to get in in the right amount of time. So it's just it's a, a huge storm of all sorts of little details and schedules that you have to kind of make sure are happening and everybody's informed and and also it's managing a lot of personalities like mm -hmm. you had mentioned both good and bad and um also trying to to keep a good energy on the set you know the the guy that i pretty much learned from uh he'd be embarrassed but i'd call him my mentor it's actually nick mistandre who did tons of those george romero films. oh yeah yeah i was gonna say that name's familiar he's the me. greatest yeah. guy from pittsburgh so he's got that great pittsburgh attitude of let's go and kick ass yeah but good god we're working on a freaking tv show let's have some fun yeah you know yeah um some of the things we used to do aren't allowed <laughs> to do anymore um but we still have like goofy theme days and you know hawaiian shirt day and tie day and dress yeah. day has died mick used oh, to yeah. do skirt day when the men wore skirts i rem i was gonna say i remember that i remember reading about that yeah. it was pretty nuts we have a, a local legend grip who's retired named bomba who used to be on mr rogers and yep. he was on all the romero films and he was one of the bikers in dawn yeah day, dawn of the dead like you had mentioned, and his favorite trick, which you would get arrested immediately for now, <laughs> on skirt day would be to wear a mini skirt. He's a very short squat man. He would wear a mini skirt and would climb any ladder anywhere near the set. And as people walked underneath, he would call their names so they would have an excuse to look up at him under the skirt in all his glory. Yeah. And, you know, it was goofy. Men and women, it, it, you know, it wasn't a... It, 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 like I said, today you'd you'd be arrested. There, there but it is, was a very silly thing. I, I forget who released it. It's a documentary about the making of Creep Show. Yes. Just desserts. Have you seen it? Yeah, I have. He he's in there and he's he great, is yeah. unapologetically like, yeah, I'm not going to be PC. He's, yeah, he's, he's about, so. There's he's, this one tomato, and he's just yeah. 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 But yeah. if you know Nick, he is like one of the sweetest guys on oh, the yeah. planet. You know yeah. what I mean? My wife absolutely adores him, and I know of no more. I, you know, feminist, however you want to use the word, like my wife to me is like the model of a strong woman. And she absolutely loves Bomba yeah. because oh, he's yeah. the sweetest guy on the yeah. planet. So 
I, I got off the course a little bit there, but so other than all the logistical things and the pressures and the people I have to please, like I really want to keep the set a happy place. Yeah. You know? Well, and it's, it's such a vital role. And I, I know that from my own, like we do less, you know, it's a weird thing with Scarehouse now because we do a lot of, production but for the most part it's fairly casual throughout the year i mean start a very as debtors will tell you a lot of it's done on the phone but <laughs> i still have that training that when we do the really big scarehouse shoots it's all about the prepping it's all about the yes. logistics because yeah. it is still ingrained in me from those years of working in, in in tv and working on the big film shoots that once you're there on the day that's when it gets very expensive yes mm-hmm. it's like sand rolling out and yes. you're like no you don't want to have a moment of people standing around going what wait what are we doing what's mm-hmm. happening yeah. and i've heard so many terrifying stories from productions where they all get ready and they're shooting a thing and then then they're on to the next setup and they go oh wait we forgot to get the reverse we got to move all this stuff back yeah and yeah. um katie's been part of so many scarehouse shoots and i think you've you've seen how much thought goes into okay like doing everything in a linear path and we've got incredible incredible crew that's very small and it's constantly like okay if we're shooting one thing you know we're shooting scary clown there's somebody setting up lights in the next set and doing the thing and though a few years ago we actually had three units going at once Mm -hmm. on a scare house shoot which was fun but definitely (laughs) led to taco bell at the end of the night exhausted (laughs) like i'm i'm my brain can't can't yeah. think in three levels anymore. It was some inception level thinking. Had to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was even things like our building is not temperature controlled. And of course Oof. we're shooting these things in summer right, right before the season Sweltering. starts. So it's like, okay, what time can we prep the clown that he won't look like a sweaty mess yeah. by the time yeah. we shoot? And plus you don't want to torture actors too much. I mean, sometimes they deserve it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's definitely a process of, okay, we have to do this person at this time so they don't get overheated and give them a break between here and there. Cause a lot of times the actors will play multiple characters in a video you mm-hmm. have no idea that oh, they're yeah. playing multiple characters mm-hmm. in a video and they you know how can we get them moving from one thing to another and we have a schedule broken down that we revamp how many you know, like you say how many times and we're like oh we can do that oh no we can't because so and so can't be here till this time and right yeah. or the dreaded <laughs> good news bad news of oh i got an idea and and frank is killer on this he's <laughs> like hey i got an idea and and you're like we have no time for that. We can't do it. But it's so cool. <laughs> oh, okay, we'll do it. And then all of a sudden, it's hour fourteen. Like, yeah, yeah, we're non-union. Uh, <laughs> so we just get it all out of our system in one really, really long day. But it's it's a lot of fun, and like just being part around the production of things and getting to see the things behind the scenes. Because I don't have any experience beyond Scarehouse. I have no sort of any type of that experience. So it's always fun. It's always a fun day too. It's chaotic, and you're. We get at each other, and but at the end, it's always a good time. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and Dutters, you've been thrown into the mix a lot of times when, like, the Germans oh, or gosh. when the outside, you know, when the outside journalists come in. That's an interesting. <laughs> that's an, an interesting challenge because the journalists will come in, and sometimes they're just, you know, sometimes they're just a blogger, not just a blogger. I don't, I don't mean it to be dismissive. Sometimes they are a blogger with a smaller crew. Yes, sometimes it is only and a then, blogger as opposed to other. Yes, uh, and then sometimes you have the ne- those bloggers are just awesome. <laughs> uh, the uh, the then sometimes you have the network crews coming in, mm-hmm. and it's a whole thing of you have to think like a PA, like a, like an AD of giving them everything they want 
while also making sure they're not getting in the way of the customer experience. And then also making sure they're not getting the stuff that you don't want them to get because it's a magic trick. Uh, We've, we've done much better, but there's always one journalist will come out and somehow they find that one awful prop that you have hidden in the corner with no lights on. And you're like, Oh my, they're shooting that, aren't they? (laughs) I turned my back for two seconds and they found that beat up rat in the corner that we (laughs) just threw over there. Um, or we've not painted like no one is going to turn I, is that one of the reasons if you come to Scarehouse if you turn so you can walk straight through Scarehouse and everything looks amazing but if you turn around it still looks amazing because I think there have been moments where people have come in with cameras and done things and they're like let's turn around and you're like oh we didn't paint that <laughs> they're not supposed to <laughs> there have been so many times over the last 10 years where we will build the set and it's all done mm-hmm. and we'll go through and we'll turn around and we'll go, you know, it looks better this way. I'm like, oh, you're <laughs> right. You son of a bird. <laughs> but it's, it's been moments where we're like, we didn't paint that one spot. It'll be like one single spot that, that one you never tiny notice bit. ever. But no, the camera right there. It's like, come on. <laughs> and I, I it's fine. We, we've really been using the same crew for, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And they all, you know, they come from freelance to hustle the TV mm-hmm. background, which is good because, again, we we move quick. We have to pick up a lot of stuff in one day. And, you know, we're Scarehouse is self-financed. Mm-hmm. So this is a thing of like, oh, I'm I'm paying for this. Right. Yeah. So uh, and that that <laughs> could be the worst pressure. when I'm the one who goes long. I'm like, I'm just costing myself money at this point. <laughs> but um, but it's that same thing of just getting every like you say, it's you can't oversell the importance of, okay, time for ice cream sandwiches, everybody time for food is, I may have offered this before on podcast, but man, if you're ever, I can't remember who gave me this advice. Um, but if you're ever involved in a big production shoot or video shoot or film shoot, don't, don't script, don't scrimp on craft services. Oh God, no. Yeah. No, I like that. People are working so hard. I mean, it's funny because people come off the set and they're like, dear God, you guys eat breakfast. You eat lunch, a catered lunch, and yeah. every time at any second, there's you know snacks and sandwiches and coffee and you know Lacroix, which drives film crews and things yeah. like that. And it's like, well, yeah, but if you're working your ass off and you know you're working a 14 hour day, and then you drive an hour home and you drive an hour in the morning, so you've got like six hours to go home, kiss your significant other, and fall asleep, and maybe do the laundry, put a load of laundry oh, yeah. before. It's like. I mean, you know, I think Clint Eastwood said, like, filmmaking is about feeding people and moving them from one place to another. (laughs) And I mean, if you're on hour 14 and it's 3 a.m., you know, a cup of coffee and a peanut is like a wonderful thing. It it really makes your day and and keeps you going. It's all about whatever keeps the machine going. And there's so much thought that goes into everything. I remember one shoot back at PXI where somebody had the idea to have a big hearty lunch of pasta. Oh God. And for years afterward, it was like no clunk food, no clunk food. Cause the whole, like everyone was just, uh, yeah. And I mean, those are the little things like you can just say, Oh yeah, yeah. Or like even we'll do sometimes like get pizza. Like, are we sure it's pretty hot? Maybe we do sandwiches, maybe, you know, all Mm -hmm. these little details you have to think of to just, Keep the train moving. Yeah. Turkey, the happy. silent lunch killer. I hate when they serve turkey at lunch because it just makes you mental because it's true. You know, after lunch, you're just, I'm so sleepy. I just want to go lay down. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's all that stuff. It's, there's just so many 
little wheels within wheels, you know, like you said, you know, can you keep the lunch hot? And, yeah. and you know, oh my God, I'm going to incur a meal penalty if I go over. Oh, yeah. and, you know, and you don't want to go over, obviously, because you're hungry and the people working for you are hungry and people's, you know, work is, is going to go downhill if they're starving. And, and yet, you know, sometimes if you can beg an extra two meal penalties, you finish a scene and you're ready to move after yeah. lunch. So it's just this constant, you know, roiling cloud of, of different things that are all impinging upon just trying to get the thing done. I, re- I remember home video, one of our guys, he, uh, at the time that they shot Dark Knight Rises, he actually lived in an apartment downtown where the climatic, uh, Batwing uh, vehicle chase was basically shot outside his apartment. <laughs> so he has videos online of like being woken up by a helicopter going by his window or uh, different things. But he has this home video that I love of Christopher Nolan just walking around trying to figure out, you know, trying to figure out stuff. And he has some kind of assistant just standing next to him with a cup of almonds. <laughs> and I'm like, that's, I mean, and you could go, that sounds so decadent, but that makes perfect sense. Like, Christopher Nolan's are moving around. He needs yeah, snacks. Yeah. He's, you know, he's the main guy. He's not going to be, you know, it makes sense to not for him to have to stop and go all the way back to craft services. Right. Mm-hmm. But then he's also not going to be standing there in his fancy suit with just eating a bowl of peanuts. So it's just like at some point, some AD somewhere said, all right, Skeeter, just follow around Chris with a with <laughs> cup of almonds and keep him happy. Yeah, that 15 minutes uh, will more than pay for whatever that portion look is making. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, we 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 talked about the scary stuff, but I, I mean, since you were you printed out your oh, uh, movie list, what are some other projects you've worked on over the years that really resonate with you? Oh, I actually really have to look at this thing because it, it it's in a in a the best way. It just it starts to blur together after yeah. a while, you know, and and you just think of little bits and pieces. Uh, I'm just looking at my printout from IMDb. Um, you know, like I said, Silence of Lambs, Innocent Blood, Dark Half. House Guest was great. It's a Sinbad comedy. Nobody knows who the hell Sinbad is anymore. Oh, wow. But Phil Hartman was on it. Oh, um, yeah. And so I got to work with Phil. And um, actually, we did this long marathon scene. So I had two days where I was basically glued to Phil. Um, and he was just it was just trading jokes all day and doing Simpsons voices back and forth. <laughs> oh, and wow. Troy McClure voices and... <laughs> So that was just something that like, you know, I really, it was just a really great memory of working with him and those couple of days of just, you know, improvising with Phil Hartman, you know, which was really awesome. Um, You know, and then I have a memory. It's funny. Every time I say that, I have a memory that's tied to that is on Dogma when Chris Rock found out that Phil had died. Oh, wow. Um, And, you know, because they were really, really close friends and and really just kind of having an emotional meltdown um, in his trailer and, you know, having to be left alone. Sorry, that was a bit of a bummer of a memory, but it's just tied in my mind. Um, You know, all sorts of films. Kingpin I worked on, which was a lot of fun with with Woody Harrelson, who was a blast and a complete nut job. Bill Murray, (laughs) who was... Yeah. You know, these people, like I said, that you meet and you really, oh, dear God, please let Bill Murray be nice. Yeah. And let him be funny. Let, oh, please don't let him be a dick. Yeah. And and sometimes, not in Bill's case, but sometimes you meet these people and they're total assholes. And yeah. you're like, really? I thought you were so yeah. funny and like the nicest person. You're a total whatever. Well, so do you, do you find, and maybe this is just based on my experience, do you find sometimes that it's not the Bill Murray's and the the uh, Jodie Foster's who are the jerks. It's not the ones who have a right to be jerks. 
it's usually like, oh, featured extra number one. Yeah. He's the one who's going to be. Yeah. A lot of times um, some of the day players that come in and they're in for a day or two will present problems, yeah. you know, and be late and, and be unprofessional and be very, very demanding. Um, some of the leads back in the day were like that, but yeah, I think on the average, it's really not the superstars, um, especially people that have been in, that have been established for a while. Yeah. You know, maybe they were when they first started because my kind of bad experiences with quote unquote superstars were people that had just like taken that skyrocket. Yeah. And I think they kind of hadn't figured it out. And sometimes when I tell these disparaging stories about some of those people, you always have to remember that was 10 years ago. It was a three month period in their lives. Yeah. You know, they had just ridden this rocket to stardom and, you know, maybe they're the sweetest person on the face of the planet oh, yeah. now. So yeah. you can sit around and go, you know, so-and-so was a complete jag off and was like the worst person on the planet and so unappreciative and it's like, well, yeah, but that was one moment in their lives. Now, maybe they are, but yeah. you know, you can't yeah. say that with authority. Um, Mothman Prophecies was really interesting to work on um, because um, the director of that w just had the most unique visual style and was mm, so well mm -hmm. thought out and did just did tons of research, uh, really like creative research, researching old paintings and old films and old, you know, art books and just like coalescing all of that into his vision on that film. So that was a really interesting uh, film to work on. Another wonderful uh, Pittsburgh winter That's film true. extravaganza. <laughs> yeah. um, those are, those can, those are tough. I worked on Foxcatcher a few years ago and we shot a lot of that in winter. And, uh, and I mean, locals will know that my God, you know, being out in the elements for 14 straight hours, I, I don't care what kind of fancy boots or coats you have. Yeah. You are freezing. Yeah. You know, yeah. And Under Armour only takes you so yeah, far. That's true. And it's funny and seeing some of the actors, that, you know, they've never, they're, they're from LA. They live in oh, LA. Right, it's beautiful. Right. It's 90 degrees every day. It's wonderful. And to see, you know, Mark Ruffalo just like trying desperately to get through a Pittsburgh winter. Yeah. It was just amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that was another film that the cast was incredibly nice. You know, Ruffalo was like the sweetest guy and a real cut up. You know, and Channing was, he was wonderful. Everybody was really great. You know, Steve Carell didn't really get a chance to know him. He was very professional, very polite, but he, that was like his one time where he was very method. So he would yeah. get made up as DuPont at his hotel and travel to set. And, you know, you didn't have to call him DuPont. You'd yeah. call him Steve, but he was very low key and serious, mm -hmm. totally nice, totally professional, but he wasn't kind of who you would expect yeah. Steve Carell to be on a set. But, uh, but Ruffalo and Channing were, were pretty, uh, pretty nutty and fun, um, and very, very professional. So that was, that was a really good, that was just a really fun project to work on. Um, some of the TV shows, um, it's funny. So many people, um, locally worked on a show called outsiders that very, like a lot of people don't know about that show because mm -hmm. it was on WGN. It was a cable network, oh, not yeah, one of the huge yeah, yeah. ones. And it was like a small Kentucky town kind of clashing with these like Appalachian, almost game of throny kind of, uh, group of people that had lived on the mountain for hundreds of years. And we had a good time shooting it. It was really challenging because, like when you're climbing up a mountain, you're, you're climbing up a freaking mountain, you know, and you are moving gear up yeah. the side of a mountain. And it's, it was really grueling. And 
we did that for two years and everybody was really bummed out when the third year got canceled. It was like the perfect storm of bad things and actors contracts and the, the cable network getting sold. Um, that was what four years ago and three years ago was season one and season two. And man, the love for that show with the people that worked on it, it's almost like we didn't realize what a good thing we had. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we just missed that show so much because it was just like such a wonderful experience. The actors were great. And we just had a really, really good time on that show. We busted our asses every day um, and got so much out of the budget. But it was just this really, really enjoyable experience that that we all kind of miss now. Yeah. Um, you know. So, uh, things, things keep coming in and, you know, we're going to keep working on them and it's, it's just, it's been a, it's been a hell of a ride. It's, you know, like I said, a lot of it blurs together, but, um, when you sit down and really kind of look through the list of things you've been on, there's, there's memories about every single one of them. You know? Well, and I think there's so much, we're finding this, I'm finding this with my own experience with production, but certainly with the haunted house. And and Katie and I were talking about this not too long ago in, in terms of some other projects we're working on is you don't realize, oh, we are we've put in our 10,000 hours on a couple different things. Like and it's not until you're talking to somebody who's getting either new to the haunted house business or new to doing all the production and you realize, oh, yeah, it's going to take me a few days just to get you up to speed on where everything is. Oh, yeah. And it's hard sometimes to go back because sometimes you might get that question like, well, what have you learned? Like I've learned a gazillion little things like yes. even even weird li- dumb little things like that story i told earlier about don't serve pasta yeah you know i mean yeah. those are the things you you don't know until you know and then you look back at this in your case decades of work and you're like wow i've i guess i really learned and experienced a lot from all that and i'm able to carry that forward but it's all it's all that experience it's not like there's no book anywhere that says Here's how to do this. Yeah, it is. It's just an accumulation of of things, you know, little little tricks and things you've learned and, you know, ways to save time and still be creative and, yeah. you know, how to have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C and a plan D and and <laughs> still, you know, you want it to be machine like up to some point, but you want like to me if if you stay on schedule and you use this bag of tricks that you've learned, then it allows you to get the work and then think, okay, well, look at this. We're 20 minutes ahead. Let's yeah. do something wild. The, you know, let's, let's just do something like, let's do a take where the actors just do like whatever they want. They go wherever they want. They do whatever they want. And, and, or we'll add a shot. We wanted to do this shot, but we couldn't, but now we're so efficient. We can do this insane thing. And it's just this bag of experience. Yeah. It, it's hard to, you know, a book that would summarize all of that would be a hundred thousand pages long. Yes. And nobody would read it. Well, I think what you just said is key to creatives. And I, I think this is something I hear a lot of, oh, let's just be loose. Let's just, you know, take things as they go mm-hmm. without understanding the more structure you put in place. It actually allows for those freedoms Yeah, because absolutely. you don't have to spend, you know, you show up on the day and you don't have to worry about all that stuff. You're like, oh, we have a plan. It's taken care of. And you can be so much more creative because now all your energy is just going into in you know what's going to be in front of the camera or mm-hmm. in our case what's going to be in front of the customer as opposed to if you just show up and like oh we're going to be loose that's just a recipe for chaos and frustration and structure is a good thing yeah and you're going to go if you want to go in and be loose you're going to in the long run you're going to go home and look at the footage and not have really what you wanted yeah you know and, and it's funny too because i like knowing what i do about my business i look at something like scarehouse and 
I know it's going to sound like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but like I am so impressed by what you guys do. And uh-huh. the le- no, I mean it. The level of detail and the thing, you know, like when you when you segued from PXI, I was thinking, what the what is this guy doing? <laughs> You're like not the only one, you know, quit, <laughs> quitting, you know, this this very, you know, secure job. Oh, yeah. Creative. Yeah. But secure job and, and jumping into something like the scare house and realizing like the layers of prep and the layers mm-hmm. of of detail that you guys put into not only the scare house but the promo bits oh yeah and it's just it's what you guys have done truly is is it's so impressive and i love like when you know seeing when del toro came yeah, a couple oh, of years ago and nice. things like yeah. that i love seeing that pay off not yeah. only for the scare house but also for you personally of, yeah. of you know, dedicating yourself and doing something you really, really like and having it work out. Yeah. It's oh, just wonderful. You. It's yeah. just so cool. Well, it's, it's, it was a big, scary leap for sure. But honestly, I mean, a variety of things. I mean, I, I could go off on a long tangent about this and I won't, but I mean, the short one is, you know, life is short. I don't, didn't want to be on my deathbed going like, oh, the demos were great. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I, I wanted to, this is what I wanted to do. And it's, it is interesting though, because a lot of times the things that can seem so stable, um, you know, no disrespect to anyone listening to this who's still working in local television, but you know that model has changed a lot since oh, I left. Lord, yeah. And I mean, believe me, I'm not suggesting that getting into the haunted house business <laughs> is any kind of sane life choice, <laughs> but it's it's remarkable that a lot of the things about working in local television full time that seem like, why would you walk away from it? I can't say that I saw the future coming when I did, but now that I see, you know, what the ratings and the budgets and everything Mm. else are and the amount of work that those, that, I mean, even back then the amount of work we had to do was crazy, but then the level of like multitasking and everything else that's going on now, I'm like, I, I'm really happy. I made the choice (laughs) I did, believe me. And yes, we're working with material of, scary clowns and zombies and demons, but that's much more fulfilling and rewarding than shootings and murders and fires. And you know, that, that God bless them. But you know, as we see, if, you know, spend a couple hours on Twitter, like that was, that was (laughs) what my life was like 10 hours a day of just mayhem. And how do I, how do we process all this stuff to get people to watch? And you're, you've got all the stress of, day-to-day hitting deadlines delivering everyone's worked up all the tension and then also the actual content you're doing I'm like oh I, I need to get out of this real <laughs> real real quick and you know just had the right opportunity to do it never could predict it just like with you yeah when you take those first couple jobs you never predict like well this i think scarehouse could be a thing and like oh wow yeah it's definitely a thing oh yeah um i'm sure and I would say probably also like you, if somebody had said, okay, here's what it's actually going to take to get to that place. You know, back in the nineties, you'd be like, oh, that sounds like a lot. Or, you know, I'm not <laughs> going to do all that. I don't know if I could do that. But, you know, in my case, love of haunted houses production, in your case, love of production and movies and things. You're like, well, I don't know how to do anything else at this point. Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, and yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather spend 14 hours working having working in a haunted house with no heat doing something I love than eight hours working in a cubicle. 
somewhere. Yes. No disrespect to those of you listening in cubicles, but uh. yeah, <laughs> I mean, in a perfect world that, you know, everybody does what they want. So yeah. there are people that, that want to be in offices and doing that kind of stuff. And I'm with you. God bless them. I have nothing but respect for them, but you know, I would much rather work a hundred hour week, uh, on an independent film and get no sleep and be massively stressed out. Um, but really love what I'm doing, yeah. um, than, than nine to five. And, uh, you know, people are like, well, what are you talking about? That's, I work a 40 hour week. You just worked a hundred hour week yeah. and you're happy that that's what yeah. you do. I'm like, yes, I'm extraordinarily <laughs> yeah. happy. That's what I do. Yeah. Cause I'm the same way when I think back to, you know, like when I was an engineer for about a year and a half and it was, it was cubicle hell. Yeah. And, you know, God bless those people that are designing roads and designing everything that we use. Uh, and I hope they like that because they, you know, hopefully, like I said, in a perfect world, people like what they do. But yeah, to me, a nine to five job is, is an absolute death. Like I could never, ever go back to work in a 40 hour week yeah. um, and something I just really didn't care about that much. Right. How about you, Katie? How much do you love working oh, for Scarehouse Scott? It's so much fun. <laughs> How about your, isn't he the best? He's the best. <laughs> Does that sound enthusiastic and any at all authentic? <laughs> no, it's, it's, I, we, Scott and I have this conversation a lot where it's like, we could be doing X, Y, and Z over here, but would we enjoy doing this? And it's kind of always comes back to, eh, I like doing this. I like using my brain a certain way and you have a lot more creative freedom yeah. in a haunted yeah. house and do ridiculous things. And the things that Scott and I especially get to spitball sometimes mm -hmm. that are the most ridiculous things that just like build off like, we should do this. Wish we did this. What do we do this? And it just like goes way over there and it turns out well. Yeah. And you get to actually do it, which is yeah. really, I think, and something that's so that's cool. rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to do, like you said, to spitball something and get just whack a dude creative yeah. and then see it and be like, wow, that, that's, that worked out. How cool is that? It's <laughs> well, really a cool feeling. And, and so something and i know i've said this before but the good news bad news is we are our own bosses essentially yeah there is no corporate oversight uh sponsors they they know who we are they mm -hmm. they let us go so we debtors and i can have an idea at two o'clock and it can be <laughs> on facebook within half an hour in yeah. some cases that's not always a good thing <laughs> um but yeah like we'll, or we'll have an idea like oh we should do a video of and a week later it's on the air yeah. or mm -hmm. uh my favorite one of the YouTube videos we did a couple of years ago, the the Babadook. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. I, I don't even know what happened, but we just kind of created this weird skit that just kept growing into a whole thing mm -hmm. and just put it on there. Like, what are we doing? I don't know, but it made us <laughs> laugh. So it's going up. There you go. Boom. Like if we had to go through a whole corporate approval process, that would have let, well, not only would have lasted weeks, but somebody rightfully would have gone, gone, how does this help us sell tickets? And we would have gone, shut up. We don't know. Yeah. We just want to do it. We want to do it. Let's have some fun. <laughs> like the keyword would be like awareness, exposure. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. How does this help? Awareness. Synergy. <laughs> yeah, that's a good word. <laughs> One of the most hated words. <laughs> it's part of an immersive uh, cross-platform <laughs> experience. It hits across all four quadrants. Of our target reach. It takes you to the fifth dimension. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Beyond. Trust me, I'm a social media guru. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and a ninja. And an expert. Like it's just <laughs> gosh. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for just thank like you. being on the show. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed cool. listening to all your stories too. for okay. sure. You guys are awesome. You don't realize how much goes on behind the scenes if you don't have experience behind the scenes. It's <laughs> true. true. Well, that's the way it's supposed to be though. Yeah. So yeah, it's I mean, the best. And you know, when you're <laughs> 
you know, just think about it too. The next time you're watching one of those Marvel movies and waiting to see the the three or four scenes that they have at the end of the credits, you know, all those names are names are people mm-hmm. who are working full time hours, yep. doing all the stuff. Yep. Like these are any pretty much any movie is really basically like a small small to huge business that gets mm-hmm. formed just for that thing, yes, and it exists indeed. for years. And yeah, it's it's a lot of work. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, definitely subscribe so then it will automatically be into your favorite podcasty listening doodle thing and very technical terms. <laughs> <laughs> Share it with your friends and definitely leave us a review. Nice one, preferably, if possible. <laughs> and thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> <laughs> listening doodle. <laughs>